If you will return to your seats, we are going to jump in here to our time in God's Word together. Again, want to just say welcome, especially if you happen to be new or visiting. It is good to be together. And my name is Benji. I serve as one of the pastors here. And today we are continuing, as you can see on the screen behind me, our study of Matthew's gospel. And when I use the term gospel, that is Matthew's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you were here with us last week, or if you caught up on the sermon elsewhere, you will remember that Ken last week helped us to marvel at the scandalously inclusive grace of God. And he challenged us to walk in the example of Jesus himself, an example of a life that is marked by servanthood. Um, He also scarred us with some overly detailed college dorm stories. Yeah, he's unapologetic. I just want you to know. He feels really good about that. So this week, as you can see on the screen behind me, we have a really long passage. And if you sat in your home group this week and thought, man, I don't know who's preaching, but how is that person going to go verse by verse through this text from Matthew? We're not. That's not what we're going to do. We're actually going to do something pretty different than normal, and we will eventually get to this passage in Matthew 20. But first, I want to talk about kings. And when I say that, I don't mean this guy. I don't mean this young man. And I don't even mean the Pacific Division leading Sacramento Kings, which is not a phrase I get to say very often, and I really do want to talk about that, but it's just not in this setting because we have other things we're going to do. We're going to talk about the story of kings in the Bible, and to do that, we're going to start in 1 Samuel 8. So if you have your Bible, you can open it there. 1 Samuel is part of the historic books of the Old Testament. They detail life in ancient Israel, and 1 Samuel 8 is actually a very pivotal chapter in that story. 1 Samuel comes after a period of time in which Israel was led by various judges. They were people who were called by God to provide leadership to his people. Folks like Deborah and Gideon, Samson, and eventually Samuel himself, who would be the last judge in Israel because of what is about to take place in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so hopefully you're there. We're going to start reading in verse 4. So, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now, appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters 
to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Monarchy, yay. So six times in these verses, God warns his people about a king, saying he will take their children as his labor force, especially his sons as war, their sons as his warriors. He will take their land, their food, their wine, their property, and even in a stunning reversal of the exodus itself, he would eventually take their liberty until they cried out for deliverance from God. And yet the people say, sign us up. Now, importantly, in verse 7 of this passage, God reveals that his people already had a king. God himself was their king, one who had led them out of slavery, who had provided for them and who had brought them into the promised land. And still the people say, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And so with God's instructions to Samuel in verse 21, Israel's monarchy is born. And through David, I'm sorry, through Saul and then David and then Solomon, we begin to see the warnings of 1 Samuel 8 play out. And then, after a civil war that divides the nation into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, it is as though gasoline is thrown on the fire of ungodly kingship. And yet, fortunately, the story doesn't end here. Would you also turn in your Bible to Psalm 72? Psalm 72 is what is known as a royal psalm. It was most likely used as a coronation hymn that would be read or even recited at the installation of a new king. And I want you to listen to how this psalm dares to hope. It dares to beg God for a different kind of leader than what we just heard about in 1 Samuel 8. The psalmist says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him, for he will deliver the needy who cry out. 
the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Again, Psalm 72 tells a very different story than 1 Samuel 8. One that waters the seeds of hope that things simply don't have to be this way. Beth Tanner comments, This king, with the guidance of the Lord God, is to be what the other kings could not be. And as such, the whole world is to recognize his reign as one of justice and righteousness. In Psalm 8, the, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 8, the people were concerned about a king who would show power. And Psalm 72 dares to ask not just for a powerful king, but for a beautiful king. And I think it's worth asking, given the dire outlook that we saw in 1 Samuel 8, where does the psalmist even get the chutzpah to ask for such a thing in the first place? The answer is from God himself, of course. So I've got one last Old Testament passage for us to turn to today. Would you turn to 2 Samuel 7? In this passage, before what we're about to read, we learn that King David has a plan. He has a plan to build a glorious temple for the Lord, a house for the glory of God, a house for the name of the Lord, which is a really decent idea, except that the Lord's not feeling it. And so in God's response... To David, well, he makes some promises about David's house. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod, wielded by men, with floggings, inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. God reveals to David a plan for Israel's monarchy that the people could not have imagined. A plan for a true son of David who will rule the people with the beautiful character and leadership of Psalm 72 and usher the people into a peace that they couldn't have possibly imagined. And now, with all of that necessary context, we are finally ready for our passage in Matthew 20. And I believe the text is going to come alive for us in different ways as we read of Jesus and his arrival in Jerusalem. Matthew 20, beginning in verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, 
And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked him. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, by the time of Jesus' ministry, it had been centuries since the last king in either Israel or Judah. 
The people had gone through the experience of the exile and been returned to the land only to live through oppressive regime after oppressive regime. And I think it's probably easy to imagine that the widespread sentiment of the community by the time of Jesus may have been that just maybe God wasn't really all that interested in fulfilling the promise of 2 Samuel 7. Maybe he wasn't all that interested in responding to the pleas of a prayer like Psalm 72. And then here comes Jesus, entering into Jerusalem in a way that absolutely shouts, the long-awaited true and beautiful king has come. But as we probably have come to expect, this king was quite unexpected because we learned that the true and beautiful king keeps surprising company. One of the biggest surprises in this passage is how King Jesus responds to those around him. Outside of Jericho, when confronted by two blind men, the text tells us that Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And significantly, Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. They became disciples of his. Once in Jerusalem, the text tells us that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Now, in first century Palestine, this wouldn't have been viewed as a particularly compelling entourage because the dominant thought of the day held that physical infirmity was often related to divine judgment or at least moral inferiority. So imagine a newly elected president of the United States assembling a cabinet and asking, who are the most unlikely to be seen as influential? Who will most people assume are unfit for the job? Who might garner sympathy but never respect? Bring those people here to me. Now, I don't want to know if that's how you assess the people who are chosen. I'm simply saying that's not the decision-making grid of Washington. It's pedigree. It's experience, it's social influence. Such things carry the day. And yet, Jesus' ministry regularly attracted the weak and marginalized and repulsed the powerful and influential. It's obvious in our text today. And so, in a bit of deep, deep irony, it is only the blind men who clearly see and call out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. While verse 15 tells us, on the other hand, when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The heart orientation of the religious leaders was so completely against the nature and the leadership of this true and beautiful king that they grow indignant at his mercy. While the outcasts of society found in this servant king the answer to their deepest longings. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem comes with a heavy dose of critique for the religious establishment, which reaches its crescendo in two dramatic events in our passage, both the clearing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree. If you didn't have a chance to do your home group study this week, I encourage you to look back there. It gives some great context on what exactly is happening here. Context that multiple members of my home group described this week as intense. And I would agree. But behind each of these intense moments, however, is not just some anti-establishment punk rock Jesus. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm just going to name it. Rather, 
Jesus' actions here in clearing the temple and cursing the fig tree, they underscore his commitment, his commitment to continue to act out of compassion. They underscore his commitment to see God's people live as in channels of God's goodness, ambassadors of his kingdom, rather than gatekeepers to his grace. Simply put, you will never see an angrier Jesus in the Gospels than when so-called good religious people shut the doors of grace on the needy. In the Gospels, it was often the socially respectable religious elites who found themselves on the receiving end of Jesus' criticism and those on the sidelines of respectable society who found themselves lifted up by his compassion and grace. And I think this text demands that we ask ourselves, how have we positioned our hearts? Have we positioned ourselves to experience his compassion or his critique? Are we more likely to cry out for mercy or to cling to our own merit? Are we more likely to live as those who are grateful for grace or those who see ourselves as gatekeepers to grace? There's a compelling invitation here for those who know their need to come and find in Jesus all they have longed for. But we also have to see that this text portrays Jesus as far more than just a shoulder to cry on. This truly beautiful king keeps surprising company and makes surprising claims. So these stories highlight various responses of those around Jesus to Jesus whether proclaiming him as a healer or messiah or savior or assigning him dangerous motivations as a blasphemer. And yet, we also need to give attention to one shocking claim that Jesus himself makes here, one that would have struck his original hearers, one that would have struck Matthew's original readers, but one that we might be prone to read right by. So after clearing the temple and healing the blind and the lame, the religious leaders, as we already looked at, they're beside themselves. Look again at 2115. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Now, to be clear, this is a rhetorical question. They aren't actually asking about his hearing. They are asking about his response to what everyone present can clearly hear. It's not unlike when I ask my kids who are still sitting on the couch reading a book, did you hear me call you to the table for dinner? I know they did. I'm just dismayed that they didn't respond in a way that I deem appropriate. I also don't generally love illustrations that point out my similarity to the Pharisees, but sometimes that's where we find ourselves. (laughs) So the chief priests... And the teachers of the law are indignant at the adoration of the people. And they demand, they demand to know what Jesus intends to do in the face of such audacity. Do you hear? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. So Jesus responds to some of the most scripturally fluent people in all of Israel by quoting Psalm 8. Now, you may stifle a yawn like, yeah, bro, Jesus was always quoting scripture. What's the big deal? But if we pause to consider what Psalm 8 actually says, Jesus' words here take on 
a whole different tenor. Psalm 8 is one of the single most God-centered and God-glorifying chapters in the whole Bible. It begins this way, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. And then it goes on from there to declare the praise and glory that is due to God alone for alone being God. This is a shocking psalm for Jesus to quote about himself. I encourage you to go home and read all of Psalm 8 this afternoon. When questioned about the appropriateness of the praises of the people of Jerusalem, Jesus says, yeah, I heard them. And it's warranted because I'm the one that Psalm 8 is about. And with this quotation from Psalm 8, Jesus asserts his divinity in ways that would have been stunningly obvious to anyone in his original audience. Jesus pointedly claims to be God in the flesh. This would have struck all of his listeners. And I think, side note, this is why it tells us that he spent the night outside of the city. Because blasphemy was never popular in Jerusalem. And so when you couple that with the fact that Jesus kept surprising company, this claim becomes even more staggering. Jesus is displaying a kind of kingship that the Jews of his time had no category for. But in one last surprise, we will see that Jesus' kingship has a character that most of us have no category for. Because the true and beautiful king also models surprising authority. One of the key issues in Jesus' conflicts in Jerusalem was the topic of authority. You see it in our passage here, especially at the end of the text. And it'll be common in this section of Matthew. But even his opponents recognize the authority that he wields, though they despise it. In part because Jesus' authority doesn't show in the ways that most of them would have expected. And the ways that we would expect either. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a horse and chariot that would have been common to visit, visiting royalty or conquering heroes of the day. He critiques the powerful rather than cozy up to them and their influence. He gathers the hurting and he teaches of a kingdom that is marked by service and sacrifice. This true and beautiful king of true authority came not to be served but to serve and to elevate others through his own humility. And those who relished their own influence and prestige had no room for a king like that. And I worry that much the same is true of us today. Fam, hearts that are intent to cling to our own pride and our own spiritual resumes, hearts that live for our own praise and our own glory will never be able to submit to any king at all. And especially one who earns his praise by welcoming outsiders and leading through humility and self-sacrifice. And though this may not sound much like our models for authority, make no mistake, Jesus came to Jerusalem to be crowned king. But his coronation would come on a blood-soaked cross. So while God had warned the people of Israel about the kings that they would choose, saying, he will take, he will take, he will take, the true and beautiful king with true authority sent from heaven, he came not to take but to give. To give himself in place of sinners to give his example in place of our self-serving ways and to give his spirit in place of our hearts of stone. Today's text serves as a powerful illustration 
of what we read at the end of last week's passage when Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In these words, Jesus mobilizes his people to walk in his way. And I want to ask, what about us? Do our lives bear the marks of this kingdom? Do our lives look like this king? Do we keep surprising company with those who need to know the grace of God? Do we live as though Jesus' surprising claims to be God are true in our lives? Do we live to make his authority, an authority shown through sacrifice and humility, known through our own lives of sacrifice and humility? Because this is the example of our king. And if we are a part of his kingdom, if we are citizens of that world, we are called to live like the one whose name we bear. But we have to see that this story didn't end in tragedy at the cross. This king who rode into Jerusalem humble on a donkey would later leave Jerusalem in victory over the grave. In an unprecedented display of authority, Jesus laid down his life and three days later conquered death itself and walked out of his own tomb. And it's the coronation of this true and beautiful and truly authoritative king that we remember and celebrate at this table week by week. We take bread, which tells us that this king, with all authority, allowed his body to be pierced. And we dip it in wine, and we remember that he allowed his blood to be shed for the forgiveness of sins, so that we could become citizens of a kingdom we could never earn our way into. This is a meal for those who are subjects of this king, those who have known his mercy and his compassion. If you aren't sure if you are a part of that kingdom, if you aren't sure if you're a citizen of this king's realm, I invite you to come talk to our prayer teams. They would love nothing more than to introduce you to this true and beautiful, truly authoritative king. But if you're not ready for that either, I invite you to watch. I invite you to watch as citizens of this kingdom marvel at the self-giving love of our true and beautiful king. So if that is your story, I invite you to search your heart Ask yourself how your life reflects that of our true and beautiful authoritative king who kept surprising company, modeled surprising authority, and makes surprising claims as Lord over your life. And then come in gratitude. Come in gratitude for the one who still shows compassion to those who cry out for mercy. Let's continue in our worship.